This podcast is supported by FedEx. FedEx offers fast delivery, more visibility, simple returns, and weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. population on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. With FedEx, you get picture proof of delivery, ensuring you always know where your package is. Returns are simple with packageless and paperless returns. Plus, FedEx Ground is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. So, what are you waiting for? See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. It's Sunday, July 1st. I'm Margaret Brennan, and this is Face the Nation. A seat on the Supreme Court comes open. President Trump gets the chance to solidify a conservative majority on the country's top court, which may shape American law for decades to come. The most important decision a president can make is the picking of United States Supreme Court justices, if you're lucky enough to do that. Who will replace retiring Justice Anthony Kennedy? And do Democrats have any options to block the president's pick? We'll hear from two senators, Connecticut Democrat Richard Blumenthal and Pennsylvania Republican Pat Toomey on the looming Supreme Court fight and more. Plus, as President Trump prepares for a face-to-face meeting this month with Russian leader Vladimir Putin, we'll talk with the president's national security advisor, John Bolton, just back from Moscow. While President Trump scored a victory at the Supreme Court, which upheld his travel ban targeting mainly Muslim-majority nations, there were coast-to-coast rallies yesterday protesting his zero-tolerance immigration policy. Meanwhile, voters in Mexico head to the polls today to choose their next leader. We sit down with former U.S. Ambassador to Mexico, Roberta Jacobson, to discuss immigration and big changes south of the border. All this and much more just ahead on Face the Nation. Good morning and welcome to Face the Nation. We have a lot to talk about today on the Supreme Court vacancy, but we want to begin on foreign policy with President Trump's national security advisor, Ambassador John Bolton. Ambassador, it's great to have you back on the program. Glad to be with you. Uh, The Washington Post is reporting that U.S. intelligence has new evidence that North Korea is trying to obscure and hide the number of missiles, facilities, and other parts of its nuclear program. Uh, Have you seen any evidence that they're actually dismantling their nuclear infrastructure? Well, I don't want to comment on that specific report. Uh, I, I don't really don't want to comment on anything related to intelligence. I'd, I'd rather discuss it as a more general proposition. We're uh, very well aware of North Korea's patterns of behavior over decades of negotiating with the United States. Uh, we know exactly what the risks are of them using negotiations to drag out Uh, the length of time they have to continue their nuclear, chemical, biological weapons programs and ballistic missiles. Uh, The president would like to see these discussions move uh, promptly to get a resolution. This has been the advice that China's leader Xi Jinping has given us as well. Uh, So we're going to try and proceed to implement what the two leaders agreed to in Singapore. Uh, But rather than have a a series of reports, things are going better, things are not going well, they're concealing this, they're not concealing that, Uh, really it doesn't serve the purpose of advancing the negotiations. But there's not uh, any any uh, starry-eyed feeling among the group doing this that uh, we're well, well, well aware of what the North Koreans have done in the past. How quickly will North Korea turn over its actual arsenal? I mean, are they using diplomacy as a cover? Well, it's uh, certainly that's what they've done before. But uh, Kim Jong-un was uh, very emphatic several times in Singapore. He was different from prior regimes. Uh, now we'll let their actions uh, speak for themselves. And we you have... were emphatic that you were different here as an administration, that the weapons are going to be handed over before concessions are made when you were with us last time. Right. And we have developed a program. I'm sure that uh, Secretary of State uh, Mike Pompeo will be discussing this with the North Koreans in the near future about Uh, really how to dismantle all of their WMD and ballistic missile programs in a year. If they have the strategic decision already made to do that and they're cooperative, we can move very quickly. And it's to North Korea's advantage to see these programs dismantled uh, very quickly because then uh, the elimination of sanctions, uh, aid by South Korea and Japan and others, 
uh, can all begin to flow. Within a year? Well, w what our experts have, uh, have devised is a program that with North Korean cooperation, with full disclosure of all of their chemical and biological nuclear programs, ballistic missile sites. That hasn't happened yet? We, we can. It has not. We can get, physically, we would be able to dismantle uh, the overwhelming uh, bulk of their programs within a year. Significant. Uh, I want to ask you, though, about the trip you just made to Moscow, where you met face-to-face -face yourself with Vladimir Putin to set up this July summit with President Trump. What specific changes in Russian foreign policy are you going to ask him for? What is the goal? Well, the goal of this meeting really is for the two leaders to have a chance to sit down, uh, not in the context of some larger multilateral meeting, but just the two of them, uh, to go over what's on their mind about a whole range of issues. President Trump has uh, just said in the past week he's going to raise things like Syria, like Ukraine, like the election meddling issue, really the whole range of issues between us. Uh, and I think that in the president's mind, this is very important because it gives him an opportunity uh, to size up Vladimir Putin to see where there are areas where we might make progress together and, uh, and where there are areas where we may not. Well, right now, Russia is blanket bombing southern Syria. That violates the last agreement Vladimir Putin made with President Trump. Why would he believe that he's in any way trustworthy? Well, we'll see what happens when the two of them get together. There are possibilities for doing uh, a larger negotiation on helping to get Iranian forces uh, out of Syria and back into Iran, which uh, would be a significant step forward. Use force Rat to do so? To, to have an agreement with Russia, if that's possible. Uh, th this has been something that's uh, been going on now for nearly seven years, this uh, conflict in Syria. But the Iranian presence uh, now across Iraq and Syria, really reaching into Lebanon and their connection with Hezbollah, which has been an Iranian subsidiary from the outset. And they're declaring victory is, as Assad won the war. Well, I don't think Assad is the strategic issue. I think Iran is the strategic issue. It's not just their continuing nuclear weapons program. It's their massive support for international terrorism uh, and their conventional forces in the Middle East. And I would say there, this is something that the two presidents will want to discuss at length, because I think President Trump's decision to withdraw from the misbegotten Iran nuclear deal, uh, reimpose our sanctions, begin to put much more pressure on Iran, is having an effect on their decision-making, not just on the nuclear issue, uh, but on these efforts to extend Iranian influence around the region. And you think Russia can be a partner? We'll see. I think uh, the Russians are always saying to us they want to cooperate on international terrorism. They've been saying that for years. They certainly have in some, in some areas, going back to the Bush administration, we did cooperate. On Iran, which has been the largest financier of international terrorism around the world, I think that's where the real issue is right now. I want to ask you about uh, the Director of National Intelligence, Dan Coats, who said very clearly in June, Russia is actively targeting American society in ways that could affect our midterm elections. Did you tell Putin and his associates to knock it off? I, I had meetings all throughout the day on Wednesday, uh, including with President Putin uh, and his foreign minister and his defense minister and his diplomatic advisor for about an hour and a half. Uh, that The election meddling issue was definitely something we talked about, and I thought it was significant. Now, meddling now. Yes, absolutely. Meddling, meddling in the 2016 election and, uh, and our concern about what they're doing in the 2018 election. And what President Putin said through a translator, of course, but what he said was, uh, there was no meddling in 2016 by the Russian state. Very little happens without Vladimir Putin's okay. Well, in I, Russia. I think that's an, that's an interesting statement. I think it's worth pursuing. I'm sure the president will want to pursue means? it. Well, I don't know. That's, I didn't have an unlimited amount of time with him. But that's very different from saying, my view, that there was no Russian meddling at all. So you see that as some admission on his part? I, I, think, I think the president will have to pursue that further. And I think that's one reason why he and President Putin need to have this conversation. As much as I enjoy speaking with uh, my counterpart in Russia, with the foreign minister, with others, uh, is that Vladimir Putin is the one who makes the decisions. And I think our leader needs to speak with him. Uh, on Air Force One this week, President Trump, when he was speaking to reporters, seemed to leave the door open to recognizing Russia's annexation of Crimea, uh, saying, we'll have to see what happens when the issue comes up in the meeting. Is the U.S. endorsing the idea that international borders can be redrawn by force? Is this actually a topic? No, that's not the position of the United States, but I think uh, the president... Which is why it was newsworthy when he said it. Well, I don't know that that's what he said. I think, he's, I think the president often says, we'll see, to show that he's willing to talk to uh, foreign leaders about a range of issues and, and hear their perspective. 
President Putin was pretty clear with me about it. And, and my response was, we're going to have to agree to disagree on Ukraine. But that's not up for negotiation. That's not the position of the United States. Right. But saying we'll see suggests might be. Well, we'll see. <laughs> well, that's shocking for our European I don't, allies. I don't think it's shocking at all. As I've said, the position of the United States is clear on this. Right. But is that open to changing as the United States position if the president's saying the door is open? The, the president makes the policy. I don't, I don't make the policy. Well, what is so deeply worrying to so many of our, our European allies, particularly going into this next NATO meeting, are comments like that, things that show some kind of crack in the military alliance uh, of NATO, that I, the I president don't. is looking to be friendlier with adversaries and our allies. I think that's nonsense. Uh, really? I, I think that's nonsense. I think what the president has said to the NATO allies uh, that has caused them concern is that he wants them to live up to the commitment they themselves made during the Obama administration. In to terms spend, of spending. Well, this is, it's not just spending, but let me make the point that they committed to spend 2% of their gross domestic product on defense uh, matters. Uh, it, it's not just a matter of dollars and cents. This is a collective defense organization. NATO is the most successful political military alliance in history. But if core members, including Germany, aren't willing to spend what's necessary for their own self-defense, what, what are we to make of that? But U.S. intelligence believes Russia is actively trying to undermine NATO. You understand why the president's comments, spending aside, things yeah, yeah, undermining the European don't, alliance... Don't say spending aside. Don't say spending aside. No, what what saying, is the depth of the European commitment? You are correct that past presidents have also said that is deeply troubling and they want to see more spending. Barack Obama, in exactly. fact, said that free riders aggravated him. Exactly. So, so I, don't, I don't think it's fair to criticize president, president Trump for simply saying what President Obama said earlier. Sure. But in terms of redrawing international borders, like with Crimea, leaving the door open to that, saying things that undermine the alliance in that particular specific way are very unique and troubling. I don't think that's what that comment means. Uh, there'll be a lot of discussion. There was discussion this past week at the European Council about the EU position on Ukraine. Uh, and and this, is a, this is a subject where there's been disagreement among the Europeans as well. The president wants a strong NATO. Uh, if you think Russia's a threat, ask yourself this question. Why is Germany spending less than 1.2% of its GNP? So when people talk about undermining the NATO alliance, uh, you should look at those who are carrying out steps that make NATO less effective militarily. We will be watching for that at that Summit with NATO and with Vladimir Putin. Thank you very much, Ambassador, for Glad coming on the show. We turn now to Connecticut Democrat Senator Richard Blumenthal. He sits on the Judiciary and the Armed Services Committees, and he joins us this morning from Stanford, Connecticut. Uh, welcome to Face the Nation, Senator. Uh, because you sit on Armed Services, I want to give you a chance to respond to what you just heard from Ambassador Bolton, some news there both on North Korea and on Russia. This meeting in Helsinki is deeply alarming Let's remember that Russia is an enemy and an adversary continuing to attack our nation through cyber and social media, posing a direct threat in the 2018 elections. Donald Trump seems to be the only American in public office who has refused to acknowledge explicitly their attack in 2016. They continue to invade Ukraine and they support a war criminal in Syria who continues to attack his own people with chemical weapons and the failure to make the Russians pay a price and legitimizing Putin, a KGB thug, with this meeting is very dangerous. And the North Korean situation, they're now building their nuclear capacity and devising ways to deceive the United States. The concessions we've made in canceling those military exercises with our allies in that region obviously have been met with mockery of those concessions. The same danger exists in the Helsinki meeting with Putin. Senator, I want to move on to judiciary and the question of this new uh, Supreme Court nominee. We've yet to hear who it will be, but Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell says he wants whoever it is on the job by the beginning of October. That could mean a conservative court for the rest of your lifetime. Is there any nominee that you would vote yes on? The president has said that he will appoint someone only if he or she would, quote, automatically overturn Roe v. Wade and Well, he now says back. he won't even ask that question. 
he doesn't need to ask that question because those nominees on his list have already been screened by the Federalist Society and the Heritage Foundation and other outside groups. And he's made an additional condition that his nominee also commit to rolling back the protections on health insurance, like those for the millions of people who suffer from pre-existing conditions. Margaret, I was a law clerk to Justice Harry Blackmun on the United States Supreme Court the year after he wrote the opinion in Roe v. Wade, the majority opinion. I've argued cases in the United States Supreme Court, four of them. I've never seen a court that is so polarized and so politicized. This decision will shape the court for years to come, and it could lead to criminalizing reproductive rights as they were prior to Roe v. Wade. Women were prosecuted and women died, and women were denied access to contraception and the morning-after pill. And the Mm -hmm. same with the health insurance protections. These are real lives, real impacts, and you're absolutely right. The shape of the court will be determined for decades to come. Do you regret, sir, your vote back uh, in 2013 to eliminate the filibuster for all federal judicial nominees? I mean, that, there was a carve-out at the time for Supreme Court. Then Mitch McConnell changed that in 2017. But do you think that was the precedent that has now set the stage uh, for this vote to happen in the way it will? There was really no precedent because that change in rule applied to the lower courts, the courts of appeals and the district court. The Supreme Court is very different. And I'm deeply troubled by the prospect of the president of the United States appointing now a justice who will be the swing crucial vote, not only on reproductive rights and workers' rights and civil rights. So you but don't also, think that setting that precedent, you don't regret setting that precedent in 2013? I believe that it was the right decision at the time because it enabled us to move forward. But the president should not be permitted to appoint a justice who will decide whether or not he complies with a subpoena to testify before a grand jury Mm -hmm. or pardons himself. I believe that whoever is appointed ought to recuse himself and commit to recusing himself from those kinds of decisions that affect the personal finances or the special prosecutor investigation. Immigration is also a hot-button issue um, that may and already has in some ways come before the Supreme Court. I want to ask you, sir, do you agree with your colleague, Senator Kirsten Gillibrand, that we should get rid of Immigrations and Customs Enforcement, or ICE, as that agency is known? Abolishing ICE will accomplish nothing unless we change the Trump policies. I visited the border about a week ago. I saw the brutality and inhumanity and absolute cruelty of these policies, ripping children away from their parents. There is no plan or path to reunify them. It is not happening, and the Trump administration is embarked on a train wreck, a moral train wreck, a legal train wreck, and a humanitarian train wreck, because the plan now is to put the families together in tent cities behind fences, and other barbed wire in ways that amount to imprisonment, internment, just as was done with people of Japanese descent during World War II. That is a policy that is a disgrace to the United States of America. Senator Blumenthal, thank you very much for your time. We'll be back with a lot more Face the Nation, so don't go away. Memories make us laugh and cry. And sometimes cringe when we look back at our fashion choices. But in between flashbacks of bowl cuts and dad jeans, our memories are fading, and so is the old media that holds them. Hi, I'm Adam Baselogger. And I'm Nick Mako, and we're the founders of Legacy Box. Legacy Box is the easiest and safest way to preserve your family memories. Here's how it works. Fill Legacy Box with your outdated media. We professionally digitize and send them back on DVDs, thumb drive, or the cloud. Look, those forgotten home movies, VHS tapes, film reels, and photos are degrading right before your eyes. Experience peace of mind and enjoy reliving the glory days. Join more than half a million families who have already trusted Legacy Box. Save your memories today. Visit LegacyBox.com save. And for a limited time, get 40% off your order. That's LegacyBox.com save for 40% off. LegacyBox.com save. 
We're back with Republican Senator Pat Toomey. He joins us from Bethlehem in his home state of Pennsylvania this morning. Senator, welcome to the program. You just heard Senator Blumenthal lay out uh, his arguments as a Democrat, his concerns about a Supreme Court nominee. Uh, I want to ask you, he, he has raised this question of if the special counsel's investigation ever makes it to that court, whether this kind of nominee could become a problem, given that the president will be selecting someone who could potentially decide on him. Uh, Margaret, I think that's a ridiculous argument that's made as, as just a, an attempt to uh, make weight for their real position, which is that President Trump should never be able to confirm a vacancy. Look, I don't remember hearing the Democrats making that argument when President Bill Clinton was, in fact, personally under investigation when a vacancy occurred. My understanding is that President Trump is not himself personally the subject of the investigation even. Mm -hmm. So I think that is a, a non-argument. And um, we, uh, we needn't pay any attention to it. I want to ask you about something you've been very vocal about lately, and this is your concerns, your criticism of the president's trade policies. Today, starting today, Canada's putting tariffs on a number of American-made products, including uh, chocolate, ketchup, other items. How much is this going to cost right. your home state? Well, it's going to be harmful to my home state. So far, this uh, trade war, if it, uh, if it is that, and it seems to be heading that way, has been of a, a modest scale. It hasn't done great damage yet, but it has the potential to do that. And it would be an unbelievable pity to disrupt what is really a fantastic economy because of tax reform, because of regulatory relief. We've got strong economic growth, tremendous employment prospects. So I don't want to see a trade war uh, undo that, undo that and uh, limit the ability of Pennsylvanians and Americans generally to buy and sell goods and services with our neighbors and allies, which is, after all, who this is targeting. But you have tried and now failed twice to take back in Congress some control over the president's ability to put these tariffs in place, citing national security grounds. So would you withhold your vote to confirm a Supreme Court nominee in order to get the kind of vote you're asking for on tariffs? No, I... That won't be necessary. Um, I do want to have a vote to restore to Congress its constitutional responsibility to have the final say on the imposition of tariffs, especially when it's national security that's invoked as the rationale. But there is uniform, I believe, uniform Republican Senate support for us allowing that debate, allowing that vote. Not all of my Republican colleagues agree with me on the substance. But there was no Republican objecting when Senator Corker and I sought to have an amendment, sought to have that vote. It was a Democratic colleague, colleague reflecting concerns on the Democratic side. Their position is we shouldn't even be able to debate this. We shouldn't Has be Republican able to vote. Has Republican leadership but given you a the, date? The, the, we, ha, we will have multiple options, Margaret, where there is no procedural opportunity for the minority party to block the vote. We will have this vote. And Senator McConnell and my Republican colleagues are not going to attempt to block the uh, ability to have that vote. And we'll see where the votes are. We don't know that yet, but I think we should find out. The president did seem to back down a bit on these investment restrictions that had been floated uh, for China. Do you see him backing down on the question of tariffs? So here, here's my hope. My hope is that we can persuade the president to focus on the real problem on the trade front. The problem is not Canada. The problem is not Mexico. I mean, with Canada, we have a trade surplus. We have a surplus even in steel. So why we should punish my constituents with a tax when they import these small amounts of Canadian steel makes no sense. The real problem is the really bad behavior of China, specifically the theft of intellectual property, coerced technology transfers. What we ought to be doing is make peace with our allies with whom we trade to our mutual benefit and join forces and deal with a real problem. And China poses a real problem. I think the president knows that that's a real problem. And so my hope is that we can persuade him to focus there. We'll be watching. Senator Toomey, thank you. We want to take a moment now to reflect on five lives lost this week to gun violence. Journalists and staff at the Capitol Gazette in Annapolis, Maryland, who were shot on Thursday. Despite the tragedy, the paper still managed to print an edition the next day. We'll be right back. What's your next adventure? Everyone deserves a chance to do what they love. Pacific Life helps you reach financial goals while you go after your personal ones. Plans change over time, and your financial solutions can too. 
Pacific Life has a variety of financial solutions that can help you complement your life goals and passions while managing the uncertainties. Backed by more than 150 years of experience, you can count on Pacific Life to be there so you can go out and keep living your best life. Pacific Life is one of the most dependable and experienced insurers in the industry and has been named one of the 2019 world's most ethical companies by the Ethisphere Institute. The freedom to go after whatever is next for you? That's the power of Pacific. Ask a financial professional about how Pacific Life can help give you the freedom to do what you love or visit www.pacificlife.com. Welcome back to Face the Nation. I'm Margaret Brennan. Today, voters across Mexico head to the ballot box to choose a new president. And in doing so, they're likely to send a strong message to those of us north of the border. Joining us to discuss the consequences is former U.S. Ambassador to Mexico, Roberta Jacobson. Thank you for being here, Ambassador. Thank you, Margaret. Uh, the expected win winner here, AMLO, as he's called, uh, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, is coming yeah. from the left-wing party here in, or really a party he's kind of paving the way for, um, but he's viewed as, as a populist and sometimes described as kind of a left-wing Donald Trump. Yeah. And what do you think uh, that his election could mean for relations with the U.S.? Well, you know, one of the things that, that he, both in my discussions with him and in many of his conversations and in his advisors' conversations ahead of these elections have emphasized is the importance of the relationship with the United States and that it be positive and that they're going to work hard on that which does not mean that it's going to be easier mm -hmm. um, than it has been with the current Mexican government. I think there are a number of issues on which it's going to be difficult and maybe harder. Um, but he has been at pains to reassure people that he takes this relationship seriously, that he does not think that it needs to be um, descend into insults, and he has the leftist credentials to be able to stand up politely in a way that I think he's got the credibility to do that. And, and he had such fiery rhetoric. I mean, he's talked about hitting back at the elites and right. standing up to President Trump. A lot of the uh, remarks the president has made over the past year uh, have been very unpopular with people throughout Mexico. Uniformly. It's one of the only things they agree on. <laughs> so what is at stake for Americans when it comes to this election? Well, I think the most important thing that's at stake is whether we continue to cooperate and work with Mexico as partners, whether you're talking about economically or on trade or on migration or on security, or whether that partnership that we've built over the last 30 years begins to deteriorate. Well, the president describes it as already deteriorating, that Mexico is not doing its job at the border, that Mexico is sending drug dealers into the United States. He's used some pretty harsh language. Mm -hmm. And, and that is not helping make this partnership any better. Uh, the fact is the Mexican government currently in power, and I expect certain aspects of López Obrador's government to continue cooperation on things that are important to both countries. And that does include secure borders. It does include um, cooperating on narcotics. It also includes cooperating on people from outside the hemisphere who may be trying to enter the U.S. through Mexico. That's the border crisis. Well, but those are Central Americans. I'm talking about people who may be from all over the world, Middle East, South Asia. And we've had enormous cooperation with Mexico. So our own security depends on continuing that cooperation. And Mexico feels, quite rightly in many cases, that they've gotten almost no credit for that. You left the Foreign Service after, what, 30 31 years? 31 years. 31 years as an American diplomat. You served Democrats. You served uh, Republicans. Right. Why did you choose to leave the Trump administration? Well, it, Mexico, being ambassador to Mexico was my dream job. I was the assistant secretary for the region for five years before that, and I loved the work. Um, I still love the work, but it became increasingly difficult to do under this administration because every time you tried to do something on NAFTA or on um, security or on any of the most important issues to us, education, et cetera, um, things would get blown up by a tweet. And there were many people in government trying to do the right thing because this partnership is important to Americans. Um, and yet it just never seemed that we could overcome 
the retreat into the vilification of Mexicans at a rally or a tweet. And that was really, really difficult. So the president's own words, you're saying, made it harder to actually implement his policies. Absolutely. The president's son-in-law, Jared Kushner, has taken a lead role in this relationship as well with the current government, um, in some ways bypassing diplomats like yourself. What does that mean with a new Mexican government? If he doesn't have someone at the end of the line who he's dear friends with, like in the current government, how do you build a bridge with this new fiery populist who's coming into power? You know, my expectation is there's going to be a period. Mexico has a very long transition period. It's five months. So that's a long time to get themselves organized in which we also will be trying to, in the administration, uh, the U.S. government will be trying to get themselves organized and find out who the counterparts are. Um, will it go back to being foreign secretary to foreign secretary, which with Mike Pompeo in the job at state is much more probable? Or will there be somebody close to Lopez Obrador that he'd like to put in the position to work with the White House directly? Um, having been in the State Department for 31 years, you can guess where my vote would be. I'd prefer to go back to institutional relationships that I think support and make the relationship stronger. But it's not clear to me that, that this might not be a president in AMLO who likes the same thing, who likes to find a trusted confidant and put that person in charge of the relationship. It's well, not clear. High stakes, as you laid out, for immigration, for border security. Thank you for very much. For our opioid crisis for as well. opioid crisis We need well. them as partners. Thank, Thank you. Thank you very much, Ambassador Jacobson. Ahead, our politics panel will break down the news of the week, and there's a lot of it. We'll be right back. Are you having trouble sleeping? NFL players have been coached. Blue light from smart devices, it can affect your sleep. They'll even wear blue blocker glasses in the evening for improved sleep. Others will try tart cherry juice and smoothies. Not only can it help fight inflammation, but to help you sleep, it's got high amounts of natural melatonin that's beneficial for sleep. The other night, my girlfriend told me I was snoring way too much and even the earplugs weren't helping. So the next day, she took me to the Sleep Number store because if I was snoring, at least she could get a good night's sleep on a Sleep Number bed. Sleep Number beds allow you to adjust on each side to your ideal firmness, comfort, and support. The Sleep Number 360 smart bed senses your movement and automatically adjusts to keep you sleeping comfortably through the night. With Sleep IQ technology inside the bed, it tracks how you're sleeping so you can know every morning how well you've slept and gain insights for your best sleep. Experience the smart, effortless comfort of the Sleep Number 360 smart bed. Find your competitive edge with proven quality sleep from $999. Sleep Number is the official sleep and wellness partner of the NFL. You'll only find Sleep Number at one of their 575 Sleep Number stores nationwide. Find the one nearest you at sleepnumber.com slash cadence. That's sleepnumber.com slash C-A-D-E-N-C-E. Sleep Number. We'd like to welcome now our panel for some political analysis. Jamel Bowie is Slate's chief political correspondent and a CBS News political analyst. Sungmin Kim covers the White House from over on Capitol Hill for the Washington Post. Ramesh Banuru is a senior editor at the National Review and a columnist for Bloomberg View. And Jan Crawford, of course, is our CBS News chief legal correspondent. Jan, you've been incredibly busy this week. <laughs> uh, and I know you, <laughs> first with the travel ban, now with the uh, what's next. And this list of contenders, it sounds like you see five main names that the president's focused in on now. Right. And the president has said he's narrowed down this list of 25, the big list that he had had, down to just a handful. And I think right now the, the two leading contenders, uh, both federal appeals court judges, one here at the prestigious D.C. Circuit, Brett Kavanaugh, he kind of has those elite credentials the president says he wants. He Yale, Yale Law School, he clerked for Justice Kennedy. Um, and he's been on the appeals court here for 12 years. He has a lot of experience. He's highly regarded both sides of the aisle. But he also kind of has that regular guy persona. You know, he coaches his two daughters' basketball teams. Um, then the other uh, potential leading contender, federal appeals court judge Amy Coney Barrett. She would bring real diversity to the Supreme Court. She would be the first conservative female justice. And uh, she also would be the only justice who's not from the Ivy League. 
She uh, went to Notre Dame Law School, then came here, clerk for Justice Scalia, uh, and then went back to teach at Notre Dame. Conservatives like her because she had a brutal confirmation hearing, and she really turned the tables on the Democrats. They were trying to say that her Catholic faith uh, meant she would overturn Roe versus Wade. So she really walked through the fire and survived and actually got three Democrats to vote for. Well, it's interesting you highlight that. I know Senator Susan Collins will be a key Republican vote, has said she won't vote for any nominee who would overturned Roe v. Wade. And, and she voted for Barrett for the appeals court. She did. She did. Um, and so I think, you know, that's what you're going to see all the focus on now is this is going to be a fight over abortion rights. Now, I, sh I shouldn't, before we go on, there are, there are a few others he's looking at, all federal appeals court judges, a couple he's interviewed for, before for the Scalia vacancy, um, Wolfe Parr, um, Raymond Kethledge, Todd Hardiman, and then another woman, uh, Joan Larson. Uh, those are kind of, we believe, to be other contenders. And what is the president's thinking on this? I mean, it seems like this is an actual process that's underway. He's often criticized for not, you know, going by the book. No, they've been very methodical about it. They have this list. Uh, they've vetted a lot of these candidates already. They've got a timetable. Uh, you're going to get a nominee a week from tomorrow because that's going to be the average amount of time between a nomination and a confirmation. And they want that justice on the Supreme Court for the first Monday in October. So we're going to have a vote. Uh, sources tell me by the end of August or right after Labor Day. So it's very methodical. He's already started interviews. And um, this is really a Supreme Court nomination, as you know. That's a president's most lasting legacy. Mm -hmm. These justices will be on the Supreme Court long after the president has left this town. Uh, and this may not be the president's last nomination. Well, exactly. Ramesh, you know, even conservatives who are critical of President Trump, when it came to his last Supreme Court justice, they were praising him. This time around, what are they looking for? They're looking for more of the same. They have been impressed not only by the nomination of Neil Gorsuch to the Supreme Court, but also by the federal appellate court nominations, where the president has put up a series of extremely well-credentialed, well-respected, solid conservatives. That's what they're looking, like, looking for here, and I think that's what they're going to get. This president understands the importance of conservative judges to his coalition. He understands that it helped get him elected in the first place, and I think he's going to deliver. Jamel, Democrats, like you heard Senator Blumenthal on the program, were sounding the alarm bell that this is going to bring up a lot of sort of culture war issues, right. for lack of a better term, abortion, uh, gay rights, affirmative action. Cynics argue this is really just about scaring people into turning out in the polls in November to vote in these congressional races. How do you view this and how should Americans view this? I don't think that the, the cynical view that this is just trying to scare up voters is quite right. I think the conversation on the left, recognizing the extent to which the court will be have a solid conservative majority for some time now, has turned to what does what do uh, left wing policy thinkers? What do left wing politicians? Um, what does a democratic coalition do in a world where there's a Supreme Court that's potentially hostile, not just to culture war issues, but also to issues of economic uh, equality, issues of um, of labor rights? How does a left organize itself in that context? And so, what I think you're seeing among among um, Democrats, some Democrats among uh, left-wing thinkers, among liberal thinkers, is what does what does our politics look like if we have to potentially deal with a court that is hostile to a, a single-payer health care program? What do our politics look like when we have a court that is hostile to union organizing, that is hostile to labor rights? And I'm not sure. Um, I'm not sure that there's really an answer there yet. There has been some kind of early discussion about attempts to kind of. Um, circumvent the court by, say, adding additional justices, right. um, uh, which, I mean, it, the, the thing about that, right, is that, like, it, it sort of it didn't quite fail in the 1930s. It was um, the threat of it uh, ended up getting the, the outcome they wanted. And there's some regret, wanted. right, right among right. progressives who had pushed for Ruth Bader Ginsburg right, exactly. to have stepped down during the Obama presidency, right. and that obviously didn't happen. Right. Um, but I think the, the broad picture is the left is kind of... Democrats, liberals, the, the, the broad center left is sort of, we've lost this battle. We've lost the battle for the Supreme yeah. Court. And so we need to figure out how to reconfigure our politics and our approach to deal with that fact. Sigmund, what does this confirmation process look like? Is October realistic to have this judge seated? I think it's absolutely realistic. If you figure, take the July 9th date that um, the president says he will announce his pick, if 
the Supreme Court convenes on the first Monday in October. Um, that's Gorsuch was confirmed in just over two months from com from naming to confirmation. So that is a completely reasonable timeline, considering Mitch McConnell has already canceled the August recess. <laughs> we thought maybe for a second that he would uncancel the August recess. But I think with the major Supreme Court confirmation, we will be here through August. But the process is very similar. You know, we've got the White House portion right now with vetting of the names and the interviewing of the names. Uh, once the person once the nominee is announced, uh, that nominee will make the courtesy visits to senators on the Judiciary Committee to these key persuadable um, swing Senate votes, members of leadership. And we're already seeing that outreach from the White House to the Senate right now. I mean, we talked earlier about how this White House hasn't been so great at a lot of the legislative coordination um, and some of the mishaps that they've had with Congress. But on judicial nominations, this is a thing that the White House does very well. So you are, you've already had uh, Senator Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski, who are, who are really closely watching because these are senators or Republican senators who support abortion rights. They've had their meeting at the White House with the president. You've had um, Senators Joe Donnelly, Joe Manchin, and Heidi Heitkamp, who are the three red state Democrats who voted in favor of Neil Gorsuch, get their own personal meeting with President Trump and who say they are very open to confirming uh, President uh, Trump's nominee who, if, if, the, if the nominee is the right person. So those are the five senators who our attention is going to be really on for the next two months. And what about immigration? Jan, you think this could actually come before the Supreme Court. Oh, sure. Court. I mean, the issue of immigration? Yes. Oh, ab absolutely. And I mean, we already see already I, the travel ban. Right. But I, I, you know, one of the things I think that's really interesting that we've seen in the last year and a half is these lower courts take a look at some of the president's policies is that you have federal judges, one federal judge uh, ruling a whole nationwide program unconstitutional. So a federal judge is essentially one federal judge can be anywhere in the country, is setting federal policy. And mm -hmm. the justices are really concerned about that. You saw Justice Thomas last week write separately, uh, saying that the Supreme Court eventually is going to have to take this issue up, these nationwide injunctions being handed down by one federal judge. So this could be an issue uh, that may lead to something like that. But on immigration, the other thing, I think, is think about the Supreme Court hearings. Um, that also could be an issue in these hearings. Uh, and there is a nominee, a potential nominee, I mean, I should say, uh, Amul Thapar, who would be uh, an immigrant. He's the son of immigrants. He would be the first Indian American on the Supreme Court. So he's kind of an interesting person to kind of keep in mind. Uh, that would make immigration, I think, kind of central in some of those hearings if he were the pick. It'll probably be central anyway, though. Do you expect it to be, Ramesh? Well, I think that uh, it could very well. You know, these hearings tend to be wide-ranging. One thing that I think is interesting, someone mentioned um, West Virginia, Indiana, North Dakota, senators from those states who are red state Democrats who are being watched. All of them are in tough reelection bids this year. That's one of the reasons that Senator Durbin, the Democrat from Illinois, was saying that Democratic voters need to understand we can't block the appointment of a conservative nominee because the map this year is going to put them under pressure on abortion on immigration, on judicial appointments generally, to vote with the conservatives. Although Joe Manchin, I think yesterday, said that he wouldn't support a nominee um, that opposed Roe v. Wade or in, mm -hmm. in that, in that he basic was, He language. signaled yeah. that he was dis right, uncomfortable right. with it, but I, he didn't draw the line. I, I, think, I think it'll be interesting to see how this all interacts with the elections in, in November, because if, if there's a nominee confirmed uh, before the election, it may not conservative voters may say, oh, no, we've, 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 we've won this. There's no reason to be energized about it. And Democratic voters may end up getting the enthusiasm boost um, from the fact that uh, not just that there's the potential of, of further Supreme Court battles down the line. And in order to stop that, in order to stop an additional Trump appointment or nomination, they, they have to go, come out and vote in the, in the elections. Thank you very much. So much more we can talk about, <laughs> but we got to leave it there. We'll be back in a moment. I used to think that all diet and weight loss plans were the same. Well, not anymore, because I found Noom. Noom is a new and totally different approach to losing weight and getting healthy that uses psychology and small goals to help change your habits. So it's easy to lose the weight and keep it off for good. Noom combines the power of technology with real human support, offering as little or as much help as you want along the way. And since Noom is an app, it's always with you and easy to use which makes it super easy to stay on track and reach your goals. Plus, it's really simple to get started. Just go online, answer a few quick questions, and they'll create a personalized program just for you. Noom helped me lose my old way of thinking about food and dieting. So what do you have to lose? Visit noom.com slash podcast, N-O-O-M dot com slash podcast, and start your 14-day trial today. Like they say, change your habits, change your mind, and change for good with Noom.
Joining us now is Mark Salter. He's a longtime friend, advisor, and speechwriter to Senator John McCain through John McCain's time in the Senate and both of his presidential bids. Salter is also the co-author with McCain of their new book, The Restless Wave. Welcome to Face the Nation. Thanks for having me on. How is the senator doing? He's doing all right. He's hanging in there. He's working on physical therapy, trying to get stronger and uh, staying engaged with the staff. And he's doing doing well, thanks. He's keeping his eye on politics? He is. Reading the papers, watching the news. I suspect he's watching this today, so I'm a little nervous about it. <laughs> well, in the book, uh, which I read, the, the senator talks about a number of things. He's mm -hmm. very reflective. Yeah. But he highlights immigration and the yeah. failure to get reform through as one of his bigger regrets. And he talks in particular about what's happening right now within the Republican Party. Mm -hmm. um, and the lack of progress, he says, is really being manipulated. He says there's an anti-immigration faction of the GOP. They need to be confronted, yeah. not ignored or winked at or quietly dismissed as kooks. They need to be confronted before their noxious views spread further and damage for generations the reputation of the Republican Party. Yeah. Can that be saved at this point? Oh, well, I think so. It's as a as a social problem. It's not the biggest, most difficult problem to solve. I think we all know how it should be solved. But th those words were yeah. written before this sure. latest sure. controversy with the sure. And he was as he released a statement with you know separating. He finds it appalling that families are being separated, and it's wrong. There are people. The people he was referring to in that comment or that passage of the book were people who look at this country and think it's based on on tribes. And not ideals, and that's 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 what he was getting at there. Who is confronting those people right now? Not enough people. I'm, I think you know we can name names if you want. Steve King, for instance, who keeps writing you know about as if it's you know American citizenship is some kind of racial purity the test. The congressman, and the congressman from my home state of Iowa. I'm sorry to confess, but. So you need more people like Senator McCain. You're you do, you do, and there are quite a few of them. Remember, we passed a comprehensive immigration bill in the Senate in 2013, I think, that passed by 68 votes. It, it, it was blocked in the House when the leadership decided not to bring it up because the Freedom Caucus didn't like it. There were plenty of Republican votes for it there and plenty of Democratic votes for it there. And that's how big social changes have to have to be affected in this country in a bipartisan way. And that's, that's what he would hope would, would happen with this. Some of what you're talking about uh, in regard to that identity crisis or that fight within the party right now uh, surfaced again with a man you know well, Steve Schmidt, who mm -hmm. ran the 2008 mm -hmm. presidential bid for Senator McCain. He's actually renounced his membership in the Republican Party. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah. But uh, you're not ready to go that far. No, I still think of myself as a Republican. I'm not happy with the Republican Party. I don't think the Republican Party ought to be the party of Trump, and I certainly identify with former Speaker John Boehner's remarks that right now the Republican Party seems to be a little asleep over here and uh, taking a nap, I think he said, and, and we're the party of Trump. I'm not, I don't consider myself in the party of Trump. But practically speaking, what does that mean for people who may think of themselves as Republicans when they look well, at voting it, in November? It, it, it depends, you know, um, not to walk away, I think, to fight. Well, I'm not criticizing Steve. He's free to do it. You know, I'll, I'll stay a Republican. I may not be voting for a lot of Republicans at the moment, but but... I consider myself one and hope the party would restore itself to sort of a free trade, lo low tax, small government, democratic internationalist, strong defense, all the things that made the party in the, you know, say the party of Reagan. That's, that's what I would hope others would, would work to do. And some, some people may think that to, to save the party of Lincoln, you have to kill, destroy the party of Trump. That may be true. But, uh, and that means voting democratic? Well, let me speak for myself. I'm not speaking for my co-author. I am. Uh, it may, and you know, I think, um, I think the uh, the Democratic or the first branch of government, the Congress, uh, needs to do its oversight of the executive branch, and never more needed than with this particular executive branch. And it may take one House of Congress falling to the Democrats to do that, because while I think the Senate is still discharging its responsibilities in that way, I think, fairly effectively, if not as noticeably, in the House. The, 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 the stuff that's gone on in the House Intelligence Committee and, and uh, you know, it's, it's, they, they're, they're not taking their oversight responsibility seriously. Is there anyone you see right now as sort of the standard bearer to pick up the mantle of Senator McCain? Oh, I think there are a lot of people in the Senate. You know, it, it, it doesn't get any attention because it's not newsworthy. But if you look at his committee, which is really the proudest 
uh, uh, service he's ever rendered as his chairman of the Armed Service Committee. It meant a great deal to him, has, continues to mean a great deal to him. Um, it does its job every single year without fail. It passes the defense bill, often controversial elements in it, but it almost always passes un unanimously. It just did again. goes to conference with the House Armed Service Committee, which does its job, and they work out their disagreements and send a bill to the president. That goes on every single year, while other committees haven't. Um, that there are still, you know, pockets of normalcy in the Senate and and in the House too. You know, where where they do their they do their work. Pockets of normalcy. Yeah. All right. These are odd times, but. <laughs> Mark, thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for Good having to me have on. you on the Good show. On. We will be right back. That's it for us today. Thanks for watching. We hope you all have a safe and happy Fourth of July. And until next week, for Face the Nation. I'm Margaret Brennan. Today's guests were White House National Security Advisor John Bolton, Connecticut Senator Richard Blumenthal, Pennsylvania Senator Pat Toomey, and former Ambassador to Mexico Roberta Jacobson. The co-author of The Restless Wave, Mark Salter, also joined us. The executive producer of Face the Nation is Mary Hager. This broadcast was directed by Allison Hawley. Face the Nation originates from CBS News in Washington. For more Face the Nation, we're online at facethenation.com, and you can follow Face the Nation and CBS Radio News on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Face the Nation is also rebroadcast on our digital network, CBSN, at 11 a.m. and 6 p.m. Eastern every Sunday. It was the biggest scandal in pop music. The stars of Milli Vanilli, the Grammy-winning multi-platinum R&B phenomenon, were exposed as frauds. But none of this was their idea. So whose idea was it? Enter German music producer Frank Varian. He saw the success of acts like Michael Jackson and Prince, and he wanted in, no matter the cost. So he devised the perfect pop heist. Two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? They couldn't sing. But Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies and takes a never-before-heard look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when the truth came out, Rob and Fab were the only ones who got burned. Looking back now, it's hard not to wonder, why did everyone blame them and not the man pulling the strings? Follow Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sat from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, early and ad-free on Wondery Plus.